Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete podcast. Today's guest is Georgina Lawton. She is a 20-something journalist, weekly Guardian columnist, travel writer and the host of Audible's NDA podcast, The Secrets in Us. It's an audio series that looks into the do-it-yourself DNA testing kits that people take and Georgina follows the stories of those learning to live with the results. Georgina's debut book, Raceless, is out now, which is a stunning family memoir exploring race, identity and the devastating effect of long-held family secrets. It's a really moving examination of how racial identity is constructed through Georgina's own journey grappling with secrets and stereotypes, having been raised by white parents with no explanation as to why she looked different to them. The memoir grapples with the question, what constitutes our sense of self? It's such a beautifully written memoir. I absolutely loved it. It's truly unforgettable. And Georgina tells the story so, so well. And it's an incredible story of finding and forming one's own identity. It's the best memoir I've read this year. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Here it is. I loved your book so much. It was so beautifully written and just such an incredible memoir. I mean, it's completely unique and we're going to get into it, but congratulations. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. In the book, you mentioned that you wrote a Guardian article about your upbringing and how that went pretty viral, didn't it? That really resonated with a lot of readers. I was just wondering, was that article the sort of jumping off point for writing the book or were you already writing the book at that point? No, that Guardian article was really what kickstarted everything. Um, I wrote about growing up in a white family and not ever having answers around my identity, being mixed race, looking black. And yeah, I was really on this journey. I think I was traveling at the time and I wanted to write about this, but I didn't know what outlet would be best. And I approached the Guardian and they said, write this feature, just describe everything that you've, you've described in the email. And I wrote it and it went really viral, like racking up like hundreds of thousands of page views in like a weekend. It was like the most read article on the site. And then from that, they asked me to do another feature about um, dealing with my hair and how my parents helped me deal with my hair, particularly my, my dad that raised me. And then from that, I got a column. And yeah, that brought me into contact with so many people who had experienced similar issues of sort of um, racial, I guess, identity mis misattribution I call it like misattributed identity Mm -hmm. and people who had dealt with DNA test results and stuff around their lies around their heritage and their parentage so I got brought into contact with a whole community of people and also with publishers and agents who said hey you should write a book so that's what I started doing after I finished my column. It's so incredible that we get to go on this journey with you in many ways in the book it feels it's very moving. It's very, you know, it's very compelling because it's like we want to find out what happens in many ways, even though you're, you know, having to go back in time and relive these moments. I mean, I think in the book you do mention that your mum at first found the Guardian article a bit much, didn't she? Like she kind of felt like a, a bit worried that people would know too much about the family, things like that. I mean, how did you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, my mum is Irish Catholic. She was brought up in the 60s in rural Ireland in a place called County Clare. And 
you know, nobody talks about their business there. You don't hang your desk laundry out to dry. So when I first started writing about our life together and how I'd come to exist as a black child in a white family, that ultimately exposed her because it exposed her infidelity. And that was really hard for her to take at first. And we were going to therapy to talk about the impact of that on her, but also to talk about sort of what had gone on in our family. And I remember being really frustrated at the fact that we were spending all this therapy time talking about how my writing was impacting her. I was really angry, but I had to learn a little bit more about where she'd come from and see her not just as my mum, but, you know, as a, as a person who makes mistakes, as somebody that is flawed, as somebody that existed before I was in her life. <laughs> and yeah, therapy was really great for us to sort of bring us to a place of understanding each other. And I write about that in the book and I write about my anger at first and, and my rage and then coming to a place of mutual understanding and her understanding why I guess a colorblind upbringing was not the best option for a child that had a racialized identity. So yeah, it was a long road, but I'm glad to say that we're in a much better place now. So yeah, yeah. And I feel that your book, it's so important in, in many ways, but just right now where we are, with social media especially it feels like the, there's conversations that aren't very nuanced and you can just see people kind of arguing without seeing any sort of understanding we're not there yet I don't think with actually breaking down that boundary of having a proper chat sometimes and what was so amazing about that is seeing that color blindness play out with someone you deeply love yeah it was it was so hard to do because I was so afraid at first of you know writing negatively about my family because they are my family they're white all my family are white but they are the people that raised me the people that cared for me but to depict a story not just any story but your own life story in a way that doesn't I guess ostracize you further because of course I felt like an outsider in many ways even though I had a lot of love and a lot of support I felt like an outsider because I was dealing with all these racialized incidents on my own and I didn't have anyone around me that looked like me so to do something that would potentially ostracize me further I was really scared at first of writing about that and writing about how to discuss privilege and discrimination in our most interpersonal relationships that's really really tricky but the way that society's going and the way that we're mixing and the way that more and more people are in relationships romantic and familial with with people from different cultures and ethnicities I think it's really important that we have these conversations about how to talk about race because we we love people that don't look like us but we need to have discussions about yeah privilege and discrimination um in a meaningful way and in a way that doesn't separate us further and in on a broader scale like even just taking it zooming all the way out to seeing generational differences between families i feel like we're in this time as well especially in lockdown where i found it really jarring seeing my family like only a few times in the year and then sitting down around a table and having like really intense conversations about politics and realizing I do not think the same as some mm -hmm. people in my family. And, but you can't just cancel your family. Exactly. You can't cancel your family. And that was never an option for me. I never thought about cutting my mum out or, you know, cutting out like friends that had made silly comments. I was rather angry at first when I got the truth about my identity and got the truth about my parentage. But I knew that we had to come to a place of, of understanding and meet in the middle. But at times it felt like I was dragging people, like kicking and screaming to the place that I was at because I was so desperate to talk about the impact of these lies in our family, to talk about the silence around race in our family 
and even with friends to talk about some incidents over the years that I had swallowed and not said anything about. And I suddenly had this outpouring of emotion and I was writing about things and it really legitimized my experiences. But everybody else was like, you know, stuck in the past because they had not spoken to me about race for so long. We, I hadn't spoken to them about it. And there'd just been this silence at the heart of my life. And suddenly I was ready to talk about it and people weren't. And it was really hard to bring them to the point that I was at. And my therapist would say like, you know, you're up here and they are literally down here because you're just at different points and you have to try and, and meet in the middle. So that was really, really hard at first. And, you know, some people didn't want to meet me in the middle. Like some people were defensive. My mum was defensive at first. Um, I was really angry. I was just so angry. There was a lot of rage in me because I was... I was sort of dealing with the impact of things that had built up over many years. And it's a real challenge, yeah, to talk to the love pe the people that you love in your life about, about race when you're of different racial backgrounds. It's, it's incredibly difficult. And I know from a lot of emails that I've got from people over the years who's, who have said that my writing has resonated with them, I think it's a global challenge and it's going to keep, keep being really, really important because of how society is changing. Yeah, and I'm so glad that younger generations feel so more outspoken just with mental health stuff, um, things that just feel taboo. I mean, it's literally like, you know, yeah, we can talk about our periods now, thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you do look at older generations and think, God, you really didn't talk about anything. It's kind of crazy. It's crazy. And I look at my mum and I'm like, gosh, you just grew up in this sort of Catholic bubble where there was so much shame and so much guilt around having an affair and having an affair with a black person that was even more of a taboo subject and we really had to get to the to the heart of why there was a silence and why there was yeah lack of discussion around these things and just her generation they, they were raised completely differently and our generation is literally like open wounds like we can't stop yeah stop giving stuff up emotionally in online to our closest people around us like we're just so much more open totally we're like live streaming our every corner of our lives um but a really gorgeous theme in your book that jumped out when I was reading it was your friendships it, it was like if you have the main characters they're like the side characters but they they bring out so much truth and so much of you and it's so lovely I just wondered if you could talk a bit about your friends in the book oh yeah um yeah, so female friendship was a really strong theme that I depicted in my book. And I guess one scene that people keep bringing up is when I, I received these DNA test results and I was just coming from an internship in London and my friends had just started, you know, their first sort of jobs, second jobs after university. And I got these results and I was like, you've got to meet me now. And we all just met outside Clapham tube station and I was just sobbing and there were no words exchanged. And my two best friends, Amelia and Ashling were just holding me and supporting me like physically because I could barely stand up and I think that really sort of like um summarizes our friendship for a little while because there was a lot going on in terms of me having to deal with uh racialized incidents and me having to unpack things that were really difficult and those two best friends they've also got things that have gone on in their family lives that they have gone through that have made them just incredibly empathetic and incredibly kind and I wouldn't be the person that I am now if I didn't have their support over the course of the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Like we've known each other since we were literally, what, like 12. And we've gone on a journey together as well, because when I first met them, I remember one of my friends was like, oh, are you adopted? And I was like, no. 
and I got really defensive and then you know I had to open up to them as to why I didn't look like anyone in my life and then they would start defending me when I met new people and being like oh no Georgina's family that's just her family you know we've met her parents they're white but they're her parents and they would constantly defend me over the years because they didn't have any answers and like we were kids we were like 12 13 um so we had to go on a big journey as well and talk about you know why have we not discussed some of the most absurd parts of of my life together and a couple of them and you know girls from school that I went to school they said oh we just believed it we thought your parents were your parents I said really did everybody think that that was the truth and they would say yeah um but then I also think maybe if I have more black friends the truth would have come out earlier because lots of black people will come up to me and say oh you're mixed you look Ethiopian you look Eritrean you look you know whatever and I would shy away from that and I would shy away from making friends with other black and brown people because they could see perhaps what my white friends were too afraid to call out and over the years I've got you know a much more diverse network of people around me and that's been really useful as well making friends with with people that look like me and just being unafraid to explore relationships in that way because when I was a kid I was definitely afraid of being pulled away from everything that I knew in the recognition that black and brown people saw oh it's another person like us and I'd say no no no, that's my family I want to stay over here you know people would always ask me what my mix was or if I was adopted and yeah my friends that I've gone to school with have seen that a lot over the years and supported me with that and grown as well alongside me so it's been really yeah it's been really lovely it's been really interesting though because we've had to have lots of difficult conversations as well about what's gone on over the years (laughs) wow Obviously, it's amazing and exciting that it's coming out. And what an amazing thing to just be like, here it is, everything. Is there a side of you that is feeling quite vulnerable about it coming out? Yes, I'm excited. But like, of course, releasing it in this climate is odd, as you well know, like putting stuff out into the world when there's so much more going on and there's so much noise also around race and identity. And I think, is my story valid? Is it important? Are people going to care? written as sort of you know for people that are also trying to navigate identities in the spaces in between um and I think that's increasingly common these days yeah of course I'm I'm a little bit worried about the backlash but I I was more worried when I was writing online and I would have such a positive response when I was writing in the Guardian but of course it was really easy for people to find you and, and troll you or send you a nasty email or a nasty tweet or just say like really predictable stuff like that I've heard at school, like, oh, you should have gone to Specsavers to find out you were black and just the kind of like base level racism that's really not interesting to me. But, you know, when you're writing online, you're so much more accessible. But as a friend said recently, the racists are going to have to work harder if they want to get to me because they'd have to buy the book, read the book, (laughs) contact me afterwards. So I feel like writing online would probably be a bit more scary than writing a book in a way. But another theme in your book that um, was so lovely to read about, especially in lockdown, is your traveling because you write from so many different places and you're not only going on this exploration of your literal identity, but you are exploring the world kind of while you're doing it. So just as, you know, anyone stuck inside four walls, it was lovely to live vicariously through your traveling. But how did that play out in the book? I mean, have you always been a keen traveller or did you need to get away for, for a bit of time during yeah, those years? Yeah, I think years? both. I think not having 
a clear sort of racial space or clear answer for my heritage always sort of quickened in me this desire to see where I did fit in so I remember when I'd go to family holidays go on family holidays to Tenerife and I'd be spoken to in Spanish by people there but my family would be spoken to in English and I'd be like okay that's weird you know I'd be 13 thinking that's really strange or when we were at the airport and people would mistake me for being part of the you know, black family in front. And I'd be like, oh no, that's my family over here. So all these moments outside of our little bubble also sort of like pricked my consciousness in a way and made me think, okay, I don't look like my family and everyone else can see that, but where do I look like I fit in? So just, yeah, that was always a thing. Once I left my community, so I think that definitely quickened in me that desire to, to travel. And then once everything kicked off with the DNA test results, I had to leave because I had to get space between me and my mum and I also wanted to catch up and do things that I'd been too afraid to do so I wanted to go and live where I could see my reflection live where I could see my image reflected back to me that was really important and I couldn't really describe why to my friends and family I just knew that I had to literally go to black communities black spaces and just just be for a little while so yeah, I decided to do that. I didn't have much of a plan, but I went to Brooklyn first because I wanted to live this sort of like freelance writer's dream. Um, and I loved it and made loads of friends there. And then I couldn't get my visa. So I decided to go sort of backpacking. And I'd done a little bit with Amelia and Ashlyn before, like we'd been to Vietnam and Thailand. And I knew that I could do it on my own. So I decided to go to Nicaragua and then Dominican Republic and Cuba and yeah I've always had the travel bug and I started doing a lot of travel writing when I was on the road and that was amazing being able to carve out a space for myself as a travel writer and doing all these cool pitches you know as a black woman you don't see that in in the travel space at all now there's a huge movement of it but like it's still quite rare because it's very sort of pale and male and stale like being a travel writer it's really hard to break into that industry so once I was on the road it was easy to get some pitches accepted because I was already in these amazing places and I managed to work with some great brands and yeah I was you know going to places where I guess I got to experience a lot of the vibrancy of the African diaspora just because I'd chosen to go to these places on a whim and it was incredible like I was I was able to learn so much about myself and learn so much about how people like me can sort of pass as one thing or another like I was mistaken for Cuban and Dominican and went to Brazil a couple of years ago and obviously everyone thought I was Brazilian and that was really interesting and I think lots of people now who are black and traveling write about this sort of phenomenon of, of passing or having sort of passport privilege when you are black but with an American or a UK passport and you only get that once you leave your home country because when you're in your home country you know if something goes on you're, you're often mistreated by the police or you're discriminated against but once you leave if something goes on that's terrible when you're abroad, suddenly you've got this privilege because you've got an American passport, you've got a British passport. So it's really interesting to see how our identities are so much more malleable than we think, but also how I think as Western people, we have so much privilege associated with, with that, even though we're still part of this unifying um, group within the diaspora. So yeah, it was, it was really great, really fascinating. I loved it. I love traveling. I miss it as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It, it definitely made me want to travel. Is there anything like looking back where you think that really helped me? Oh yeah. Aside from the traveling, which really gave me, you know, a lot of space to breathe and to sort of work out what I wanted to do. I was reading a lot 
as I was moving around as well, that was super important. Listening to a lot of music. I remember Solange's When I Get Home came out when I was sort of on this journey and that album spoke to me so much. Like I still replay it, but it makes me a little bit sad because it brings back memories of feeling lonely and feeling by myself. Um, but yeah, definitely reading, reading other books by black women, reading sort of sociological um, articles about identity and about race that kind of like legitimized what I was going through. I read a lot about people who were adopted by white families. I read a lot about farming and fostering, you know, West African kids that are brought up by white families in usually like the home counties. And I realized there were lots of parallels in my experience, even though I wasn't adopted. I had, a, I guess, a transracial upbringing, which is where you're basically raised by people who are of a different ethnic or cultural background to you. So reading developed in me sort of that empathy and that ability to feel less alone. Um, music, I guess exercise, and just taking time and being really kind to myself and like letting myself you know, take a year out to travel. That was such a privilege and not everybody can do that. I know, like I was so lucky that I was able to do that, but just really taking the time to, to chill and and go to therapy when I came back. Again, that's such a privilege. Not everyone can afford that, but if, if you can, I would say it works wonders, even if you can go once a month just to talk to someone and carve out your own space where you can communicate about the things that worry you. That was super, super helpful for me. I actually bookmarked the page there's a lovely page in the book where you I think you list out a few books that you read um you're like weaving in all the all these things that you read and you discovered and it's like oh. a book inside a book <laughs> in many ways <laughs> it's like I'm gonna go yeah. read all these books now no yeah I remember someone saying to me like one of my um Nigerian friends from London they were like you've got to read Americana and I'd never heard of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie before and I hadn't read a lot of books by black authors and fiction is like my number one love like I've always wanted to do fiction and so I read Americana and just like the sort of transnational themes being caught between two cultures, being caught between, I guess, love and, and racism in your closest relationships with the main character. That spoke to my soul. I remember being like, OK, this is what I need to do. I need to read more books like this. And I just, yeah, took the time to do that. And I'm still on that journey. Like I'm still, you know, discovering people that I should have perhaps read years ago. Like I've only just started getting into Toni Morrison and there's loads that I want to read so I'm, I'm trying to trying to be strict with how many books I read a month I'm trying to aim for two and that's quite a lot for me like I'm quite a slow reader so it's lovely though because it just shows the power of books like they you know I can just imagine you like sitting there reading that book like we've all had that in our own weird ways where you read a book and you feel like a different person or you feel like you can go and be yourself or just do something and so powerful and I think honestly people are going to feel that way reading your oh, book I hope so. like do you know those, those those books that linger in your mind after you've read them, you can't stop thinking about the character or you can't stop thinking about a message in the book. I remember when I read Noughts and Crosses as a kid, actually, that was one book by Mallory Blackman that I, I read and loved. And I just remember when I closed the last page, it kept playing in my mind for like weeks afterwards. And I thought, this has never happened before. And that's a really amazing sign of a fantastically powerful book where you can't get it out of your head, even though it's finished. And also it's funny reading your book about, maybe 10 years ago or something you talk about maybe not 10 years actually but when you were interning at magazines and it felt like a weirdly different world and it made me realize just how just how undiverse mm -hmm. the media has been up until recently and how terrible that is in terms of 
you know, we look around now and there are brilliant platforms now, um, like Refinery29's Unbothered, I love. And you talk about that time and how it was just like, there was nothing. Yeah, it was so, so different. Like, yeah, I remember, like, it's weird that the, sort of my personal journey has taken place against this backdrop of of huge cultural change because now we've got Galdem, we've got, you know, these platforms that are part of huge women's magazine brands that never would have touched these kind of stories a few years ago and I remember saying to my editor like oh you know can I do a piece on the ills of white feminism and the room would go silent like people would look at me like I I shot their gran or something like everyone would literally be shocked and now of course like those are the kind of pictures that editors who are white and black are accepting but at the time it was just not a thing like and the magazine that I was at and that I wrote about I remember saying to them, and I put this in the book, like, oh, we haven't had any cover stars that are non-white. And she's like, oh, yeah. And then that was it. It was just like, they didn't really unpack it. I think maybe there was one in 12 months or something. And, you know, it was a great internship. I loved it. It was really great. But it was just not on anybody's radar, that that issue of telling stories from underrepresented backgrounds. Yeah. And it's not like, oh, okay, things are fine-ish now. It's like... It's not, it hasn't been enough time for it to be a meaningful amount of change. No, it hasn't, but there's such a backlash against, you know, the progress that we're making. And it really worries me because I just think you've had, you, you continue to take up more space than any, you know, black or brown person will in the media. Like you'll always have a voice just because by virtue of how you're born and what you look like, you're always going to be represented. But we still have to sort of fight and fight for this tiny little corner of representation. I do think it's getting a lot better, but it's still... There still needs to be so much more work done. But yeah, it's a really, I think it's a really exciting time to be a writer. I'm really lucky because I've got so many people around me that inspire me all the time doing fantastic things and starting on fiction projects and making waves in sort of the non-fiction world and, you know, being really honest about what we got for our book deals and who is good to work with and which editor replies to us. Like I've got this whole network now of people that I can rely on. But when I first started interning five or six years ago, it wasn't the case and I didn't really have any contacts or sort of any friends in the industry so I feel yeah really lucky that I've managed to sort of carve out this space myself and all these people around me are also doing really well and um actually this might be a good time to plug any of your other projects because you've made an audible yes series, so I've you? made an audible series called the secrets in us and I was working on that at the same time as writing raceless and it was a lot like it was like going to therapy with my mum writing about the issues in the book also trying to you know record sessions with my family and friends about what it's been like over the years, talking about my life, talking about the DNA testing industry, um, and then contacting other people who had, who had messaged me over the years about their DNA stories. So I speak to adoptees, I speak to other people of colour that have also, um, I guess, found out that there's something else after a DNA test result. So it was a lot going on for a couple of years, but I'm really proud of, of the series on Audible as well. And it's five episodes and yeah, it's out now. People want a little bit more. <laughs> amazing. Yeah, I'll link, definitely link that in the show notes for anyone else to listen. Sounds amazing. Oh, I need to listen. And there's a book that I'm doing that comes out in April, which I've also been working on. And it's it's not been announced yet, really, but it's called Black Girls Take World. And it's all about how to travel as a black woman and includes all my recommendations of places that I've gone to and sort of like a critical series of essays on traveling as as a black female so that comes out in April as well in the UK and Australia and America so I'm excited for that that's so so brilliant yeah. so needed as well yeah and also like the the joy that comes from being able to blend in 
and you know explore diasporic communities as a black female and, and what that can bring you and yeah all the great places that you could go regardless of I guess racial encounters like I just put places in the book that aren't sort of grouped on um, where's safest to travel as a woman or where's best to travel as a black female because I think those lists can also be really reductive so I've tried to mm -hmm. sort of broaden it out but also have a critical aspect to to the realities of traveling as a black woman so that sounds amazing oh, thank you. I love that because you know when you go somewhere and you just want to pretend you live there yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like this is the point I want to be here and just completely live this life yeah. for a few weeks <laughs> months yeah I think also as well as as black travelers you do get that that privilege of passing as one thing and switching back to something else when you show your passport or you speak English so yeah going to these black spaces and, and being able to blend in was really really eye-opening um mm. and just taught me a lot about identity in general I love that oh well thank you so much for talking about the book I finished reading it last night so it was so fresh in my mind I was just like what a treat to get to talk to you about it yeah thank you thank you for having me um yeah it's been really really great and really interesting considering we met at my first ever internship actually in 2015 I think it was and and also such a reminder that I know it sounds cliche but you never know what anyone's going through mm. you know there's parts in the book where you're at an internship maybe during a time where we met and you were going through some really really hard stuff so I'm so glad that um, that you've written this book and that you have, you know, you're doing what you're doing now. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, it's been really nice to to get everything out and to see sort of the reaction to the book. And yeah, really nice to have this interview because it's like come full circle almost. <laughs> <laughs> oh, congratulations. And everyone listening, go and buy the book. You won't regret it. Thank you very much.